So last week, we saw how the Christian is dead to sin and alive to Christ. We talked about being in Christ, but that is to say we are organically united to Christ as an arm is in the body or a branch is in the tree. That means what happened to Jesus happened to us. So when Jesus died, we died. When Jesus was buried, we were buried. When Jesus rose to new and everlasting life, so did we. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we have a new life of freedom in Christ. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? And it is. It is the best news imaginable. But I think it's fair to say that for much of our lives, the reality of this doesn't seem quite as tangible as we'd like it to be. Uh, We might ask, am I really dead to sin? Am I really a new creation? Is my life really so different? And I think often we can have these doubts because we're acutely aware of the sin in our lives. And so Christians can experience guilt, disillusionment, frustration, a sense of failure, and even depression. Uh, Well, today's passage sheds light on this facet of the Christian experience, and I hope we'll be greatly encouraged by it. I think we will. Uh, So there are basically two things that I want to consider, and I've called them very simply the battle and the victory. The battle. We are in a battle against sin. And it really does feel like a battle. We're going to talk about that. And then the victory. We are not fighting in vain because in Christ, we already have the victory. So firstly, the battle. So we know that the believer has new life in Christ. The New Testament is replete with references to life, new life, and eternal life. And for the most part, those terms can be used synonymously. So in terms of new life, Jesus said that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 talk about putting on the new self. And Galatians 2 says that we live a new life by faith in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Our, our faith uh, in him brings us new and everlasting life. So does that mean we stop sinning altogether? Is this new life a perfect life? Sadly, no, not yet anyway. Someone might be thinking, yeah, but surely there are some uh, super-duper super sparkly Christians uh, who don't really sin. And if they do technically sin, it's all pretty minor, nothing of any real consequence. No. Everyone's sin is ser- serious enough to warrant death. Your sin and my sin is serious enough to send Jesus to the cross. I'm not just talking about pre-conversion sin, our post-conversion sin, the sin that we've committed as professing Christians is grave enough to send Jesus to the cross. Yeah, but the Apostle Paul, you know, he dedicated his life to preaching the gospel. He established churches all over the known world. He corrected Jesus' best friend, Peter, when he got it wrong. He was whipped, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, and imprisoned, all for the sake of Christ. I mean, surely, Paul, post-conversion Paul, he can't be considered sinful, can he? Yes, he can. 
Here's what he says at the end of Romans 7. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not know, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. This section from Romans 7 is written in the present tense. Paul is talking about his present and continuing experience as a Christian. So we know that we have new life in Christ, but we can also see very clearly, I think, from Paul's words, that the Christian life is a battle. There's this tension. We want to do good, but so often we don't do it. We want to resist evil, and so often we succumb to it. That was true of Paul. It's true of us, and it is true of every Christian who has ever lived. So what on earth is going on? When we give our lives to Jesus, we become increasingly aware of our sin. We're no longer comfortable with it. It doesn't sit right with us. Our sinfulness is exposed by the light of Christ that comes flooding into our lives. And so the battle begins. When I was in the Marines, we used to do a lot of training in a national park called Dartmoor. Now, on the moors, you get a lot of peat bogs, soggy, black, watery mud covering areas the size of football fields or larger, and you can't really see them because they're covered in tufty grass. And on one occasion, we were doing a night navigation exercise, and a group of us managed to find our way into a peat bog. One guy disappeared up to his chest, and we were floundering about and squelching around trying to find our way out of this thing, which eventually we did, and then we just carried on with the exercise. But of course, it was completely dark, so we didn't give a second thought to our appearance. It was only when the sun came up and we were able to see one another and ourselves that we realized just how filthy we were. We were covered from head to toe in black, gloopy mud. It had gotten everywhere. And of course, we realized that we needed to do something about it. We couldn't remain in that state. As we draw closer to Jesus, his light reveals the extent of our sin and we realize that we cannot remain in this state. But this realization and the ensuing battle is good evidence that we have indeed received the light of Christ. Paul says, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. All all Christians experience this. We recognize that God's law is good. We recognize that what God wants for us is, in fact, what's best for us. Yet we cannot live in perfect obedience to God. Why? Verse 23 says, uh, Paul says, But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. There are two laws at work within the Christian. There is God's law. And there is the law of sin. But let's be clear, we are no longer ruled by sin. Sin is no longer our master. We are ruled by the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is our master. We established that last week. Nevertheless, sin does still indwell us, which is why we can often feel like we're in a spiritual tug of war. This is not the easiest thing to grasp, so let me introduce an illustration. Imagine a factory that has been taken over by a new manager. The old manager has gone. He no longer has any jurisdiction or authority in the factory. And that's a good thing, because the old manager was a completely rotten manager. But he will never return to the factory. His days as manager are over. 
So in comes the new manager. And this new manager is a good manager. He's the complete opposite of the old one. And he wants everything done differently. In fact, he's taken the factory in a whole new direction. And he's here to stay. The ethos and principles that govern the factory have changed, as have the instructions coming from the main office. However, the workers and the machinery are still the same ones that were there under the old manager. And so the new manager's intentions for the factory are constantly frustrated by the old workers who are accustomed to, to, to uh, doing things in the manner that they were doing them under the old manager. Now, this factory will change over time. It has to. It's under new management. But it takes time to implement the changes. It takes time to change the, the factory's ethos, atmosphere, and practices. But being, being no doubt, the changes have begun. And they began the day the new manager walked into the office. And I'm sure you've realized that the factory in that illustration is the Christian life. The old manager is sin. The new manager is Jesus. The workers and the machinery are our old sinful nature, a nature that will, over time, increasingly conform to the will of Christ, just as the workers in the factory will gradually learn to do things in accordance with the new manager's directions. However, these changes that the new manager brings do not come easily. It is a battle. I think Christians can often feel disappointed in their own performance. Not that life is a performance, but you you know what I mean. It wouldn't be so bad if we felt like we're taking uh, one step, sorry, two steps forward and one back, because at least that is progress. But often it feels like we're taking one step forward and ten back, and it can be very discouraging. And this is where the enemy will come in and accuse us. He'll say, you can't do this Christianity thing. It's too hard. It demands too much of you. Look at the way you live. You can't call yourself a Christian. You might as well throw in the towel. Have you ever heard those sort of lies? I'm guessing that most of us have. Well, we cannot allow a lie to drown out the truth. We cannot allow a falsehood to eclipse the reality of our life in Christ. And so we come to the victory. Romans 8, 31 says, What then shall we say in response to these things? What do we say in response to the fact that we struggle with sin? Actually, Paul is also responding to the fact that Christians face uh, persecution and suffering. But today we're focusing specifically on our struggle with sin, which no doubt uh, has a great deal to, well, uh, contributes a great deal to our present suffering. Well, the overriding message here at the end of Romans 8 is that Christ loves us and through him we are assured of victory. Christ loves us, and through him we are assured of victory. Verse 30 speaks of us being glorified. That is, the image of God will be fully restored in us. We will be made perfect, just as Jesus is perfect. Uh, Hebrews 10:14 says, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It's reassuring, isn't it, when we're struggling with sin, to know that the day is coming when we will be sinless. Not in this life, but in the life to come. But this knowledge should not make us blasé about sin in our lives. Quite the opposite. It spurs us on 
because we realize that the thing we're aiming for is attainable and will one day be attained. In fact, our glorification is such a sure thing that Paul speaks about it in the past tense. He's speaking as if it's already happened. And there's a sense in which it has. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that encouraging? Think of a little girl learning to play the violin. And she's getting frustrated because she keeps making mistakes. She plays the wrong notes and it sounds a bit screechy and she doesn't feel like she's making any progress. In fact, she's on the verge of giving up altogether. Imagine if someone were able to show her a video of the future and there she saw herself as a young woman playing first violin in the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra. What kind of effect do you think that would have on that little girl? I'm pretty sure she wouldn't give up. No way! She'd want to practice all the more. She'd be really excited about playing the violin. That glimpse into the future would completely change that little girl's perception of reality. And therefore, it would change her response to that reality. And that's what the end of Romans 8 will do for us, if we'll allow it to. It changes our perception of reality. We see with certainty that the battle is won. Verse 37 says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice it doesn't say we will be more than conquerors. It says we are more than conquerors. We are conquerors now in our present situation. That is the reality secured for us by Jesus. And that is the reality that we're aiming to live out in our daily lives. What assurance do we have of this? Well, firstly, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Is there anyone more powerful than God? No. You might say, yeah, but how can I be sure that God is for me? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him, gave him up for us all, how will he not, along with him, graciously give us all things? God's commitment is made clear by the fact that he gave his one and only son for us all. Jesus, who was and is God, died so that we might live. There can be no doubt about God's commitment. God is for us. God loves us. You might say, I'm glad that God is for me, but what about my sin? I can be pretty awful sometimes. Won't that separate me from God? Well, without faith in Jesus, yes, it will do. But if you have put your faith in Jesus, then nothing will separate you from the love of God. That's not a license to do evil, to be sinful. A person who has put their faith in Jesus hates sin. That person doesn't want to be sinful. Yes, we all struggle with sin, but we're struggling with it because we want to be free of it. And we have the assurance that one day we will be. In verse 33 to 34, Paul takes us into the courtroom. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is it is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Picture the courtroom. You're in the dock. God is the judge. Jesus is the defense lawyer interceding with the judge on our behalf. 
So who is the prosecution? Who is it that comes to accuse you? Well, maybe it's, maybe it's people who relentlessly point out your flaws. Maybe it's your own conscience, feelings of guilt. Maybe it's the enemy, the devil. Perhaps a combination of all three. And one by one, they come before the judge and they list all your sins, every one of them. And to each one, the judge says, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Not because we haven't sinned. We know we've sinned, but because we've put our faith in Jesus. Romans 8.1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if all of that is not enough to convince us, the final two verses of Romans 8 say this. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can't caveat a statement like that by saying, oh, well, I think our sin might be able to separate us. If we have genuinely put our faith in God, in Christ, then nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's a bit like crossing a busy road with a small child. The child is holding your hand, but you're really holding the child's hand. I mean, even if the child lets go, you'll not be separated because you've got hold of them. And when we put our faith in Jesus, God takes hold of our hands and he doesn't let go even when we do. I know Christians who have let go for periods of time, who have even gone off the rails, but God will always bring them back because no true believer is at peace with sin. No true believer is at peace with sin. When we put our faith in Jesus, we begin to react against the sin within us. And in the long run, that will always lead to a positive, progressive change in our characters. But it is not always a straight journey from A to B. In fact, sometimes it can be quite a messy and complicated process, a battle. When we're in the thick of it, we must remember that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let us be inspired to see the reality of that take shape in our lives. Not at some point in the distant future, but now, today. Let the assurance of victory spur us on to fight the battle with renewed vigor and determination. We must put to death anything that prevents us from being the people that God has called us to be. It may be a slow and difficult process, fraught with setbacks and failures, but we can't allow that to deter us. We have new life with Jesus. As we saw last week, uh, we now serve a new master. We think of the factory illustration. Our lives are under new management. We are ruled by the Holy Spirit. And that same spirit will enable us to see victory over sin in our lives. A victory that we will begin to see now, but will only be fully realized in the new creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I think we all 
identify with the experience as Christians of, of feeling like things are going well and then all of a sudden we realize just how sinful we are, just how broken we are, uh, just how much in need of your salvation we are. And we thank you that uh, we can seize hold of this truth that the victory is already won for us by your son Jesus Christ. And we pray that the realization of that will flood into our hearts and minds today that we will be like that little girl playing the violin that glimpses the future and sees that actually we will be made perfect just as you are perfect. Father, we recognize that this is an ongoing process, a process that will last our whole lives and not be completed this side of the grave. But we pray, Father, that this is a process that we will enter into wholeheartedly in cooperation with your spirit, that we may live a new life, a distinctively Christian life and a life that is uh, being changed and transformed uh, as we go through. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.